Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, I'm dropping an episode that was actually a sermon I preached that was more or less an introduction to theonomy. So, leaving that for y'all here today, hoping this is helpful for you, maybe a good refresher if you're already familiar with theonomy, or a good introduction if you're newer to it, or maybe even something that you can take the link to this episode and send it to your friends who are considering theonomy or maybe opposed to it but don't really understand it, and you can send this to help them see where they are understanding it properly, and maybe they'll also come to embrace it in part because of listening to this. So before we jump in, I want to ask you all to Follow Theana Money on social media. Subscribe to the podcast feed if you haven't already done so. Tell your friends about the podcast. Send out links to the podcast episodes to your friends so they can check it out. And um, yeah, just help get the word out there. Um, pray for me to stay faithful in doing this for God and not for my own applause. And let's jump in. So let's jump back, maybe do a quick overview of some parts of the first six or seven books of the Old Testament. We see in there, of course, in Genesis, you have creation, you have the flood. Not going to be looking too much in that, kind of jumping past that. When you get to Abraham, you have God making all these promises to Abraham that his family will, you know, they'll have land, they'll have people. And there will be the seed, Jesus, the Redeemer, from Moses' line. And then you fast forward another 400 years later after that, and you have Israel coming out of, the, of their slavery in Egypt. That in those three or four generations they were in Egypt, Israel went from only 70 people to several million, which to me I think means that there were probably actually a lot of Egyptians that had converted to uh, practice the worship of God with, alongside with Abraham's descendants because I don't think no matter how much God blesses you three or four generations is isn't much to go from 70 people to a couple million so we have this now couple million people coming out of Egypt that's when we're getting into Exodus Moses leading them out of Egypt and then now pretty much up to the rest of Deuteronomy is just focusing on them coming out of Egypt coming up to the promised land and the law that Moses is giving them we don't really see much past them getting to the promised land until we get to Joshua when they're actually inside of it and they're taking it over by military conquest. But a lot of Exodus through Deuteronomy is focused on the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, not Mosaic because it's made out of beautiful stained glass, though it is beautifully written because God wrote it, but Mosaic because that's the adjective of Moses. So it's the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, because God gave it through Moses and there's a lot of misunderstanding among people in Christianity today about what exactly the Mosaic Law still has bearing on us today. There's a lot of bad ideas about that. Some people will think that the Mosaic Law is unimportant, that we could pretty much just not even read the Old Testament and just look at the New Testament and we'll be fine. Well, one issue with that is it seems about every other page in the New Testament is referencing or quoting something in the Old Testament, probably more often than every other page. So there are a lot of books in the New Testament that there are at least half, if not more, Old Testament references and quotes than there are verses in that particular book of the New Testament. So there's an issue with that. Other people aren't quite that extreme. They're not saying we should just get rid of the Old Testament, that they're saying... Well, the Old Testament is good to point out that we, we break God's law, so therefore we need the gospel. And, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying they're wrong for saying that. That, you know, when we're going through Romans, we're seeing a lot of Paul saying 
because you can't keep the law perfectly, that's why you need the gospel. In fact, uh, the passage we were going to do today, and now we're going to do next week, Romans 10, 5 to 10, that's what Paul's saying a lot there, that if you want to be perfect with God, if you want eternal life by keeping God's law, then you have to do it perfectly. You can't even break it in one area, and because no one does that except Jesus, that's why we need Jesus' righteousness credited to us. And so there are people that stop there, their issue is they stop there, but they're not wrong when they say, the Old Testament law is meant to point us to our need of the gospel. I mean, that's one of Paul's main points in the book of Galatians. The Old Testament law is our tutor, is our school teacher leading us to the gospel, pointing us to our need for salvation because we break it. The issue with people that say that is when they stop there. If they say that and then they keep going, that's great. I'm with them. But if they say that and they stop there and they say that's all the Old Testament law is good for and nothing else, then that's when you... They're also, to use a more graphic word, they're castrating the Old Testament law. They're not letting it do everything that it's good for. The Old Testament law does a lot of other things, like the Old Testament law not just after we are, not just leads us to become Christians by seeing that we break it, but also it is a guide to us. And so the Old Testament law gives us things for us to follow, like you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Ephesians 2.10. But also that faith is not alone. That faith leads us to do good works. We're not doing good works to get saved. We're not doing good works to stay saved. We're doing good works because we have been saved. And the natural result of the new heart God has given us is that we will do these works. God has given us a heart that desires to obey him. And so we're not doing these good works to earn any kind of right standing with God, but rather because we already have the right standing and we have a new heart, then that's why we're doing those good works. So the Old Testament law not just points us to the gospel, but is a guide to us. It uh, keeps us from going off the rails into this or that sin because, well, the Old Testament's a lot longer than the New Testament, so the Old Testament has a lot more words. There are certain things that are morally wrong that the New Testament never mentions that the Old Testament tells us are wrong. So if the New Testament was all you ever accepted, you wouldn't have anything in the Bible telling you that's wrong. One more graphic example of that is bestiality. There's no passage in the New Testament that tells us bestiality is wrong, but there are a couple in the Old Testament that do. And so if you wanted to just rip out the Old Testament, then tell me how that's wrong using only the New Testament. So the Old Testament is important especially the Old Testament law, but we also have to make sure we don't go to the other extreme. There are some people that want to just rip it out and act like it's not there, and they'll just have their New Testament Psalms and Proverbs and never read any other book of the Old Testament. But then you have the other extreme, the type of people Paul is warning about in uh, Galatians, the people that say, we need the gospel, but we also need to obey the Old Testament law to stay saved. And that's the other extreme. Like, you know, someone tries to say we need Jesus, but we also need to still sacrifice. Well, that's wrong. All of the Old Testament law is still applicable, but it's fulfilled in Christ. That we don't obey, we don't go sacrificing animals once a year on the Day of Atonement anymore because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. All of those lambs sacrificed on that day every year for centuries leading up to Christ were just pointing forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we don't do sacrifices anymore because Christ has fulfilled all of those. To still do a sacrifice would be to act as if Christ had not come or as if his sacrifice was incomplete and another one was still needed. To do a sacrifice now would be to deny the gospel. So that's where we get into the Old Testament law has this threefold division. And there's overlap between them. The Old Testament doesn't lay out, here's the first division, here's the second, here's the third. It's more something from our understanding of it. We've understood these different laws apply to different things, and then some of them apply to multiple of them. So there's a little bit of overlap, but the three general distinctions in the Old Testament law is the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. The moral law are the things that are moral. Good term there for it. The things that are moral, like the Ten Commandments. You know, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't desire your neighbor's goods, don't, that's don't covet. That's the moral law. The civil law is the things that govern Israel as a nation, like, um, you know, have a fence around your roof, and if you don't have a fence around your roof and someone falls off your roof and dies, well, you're responsible for their death because you were disobeying the command to have a fence around the roof. 
And the ceremonial law is the sacrificial system. That's like the, you know, the once a year day of atonement sacrifice. That's the priestly system, the Levitical system, all of the other sacrifices besides just the day of atonement once a year sacrifice at Passover. That's the whole sacrificial system. And so to a certain extent, in a certain way, all of it is still applicable. It's just the ceremonial has been fulfilled in Christ. That's why I was just saying we don't go sacrificing animals anymore because Jesus is our Lamb of God. We'd be denying the gospel if we still did that. And so that's where that leaves us with, okay, in Christ, by believing the gospel, we're obeying the ceremonial law. We're obeying all of God's commands about sacrificing these animals by believing the gospel because they were all pointing to Christ and Christ is the fulfillment of them all. And then that still leaves us with the moral and the, ceremon- and the civil. So we're trying to figure out what we do with them. And uh, some people will try to say, well, when it says Jesus fulfilled the law, they try to act like he fulfilled the moral and the civil in the same way he fulfilled the ceremonial. That because Jesus was perfect, that means we don't have to do anything anymore. That we can basically just live whatever way we want to. In the same way we're not sacrificing goats anymore, we don't have to obey this moral and the civil law anymore. Well, no, that's a position that's called antinomianism. Namas is the Greek word for law, so it literally just means anti-lawism. Those people are basically just saying, you know, go do, basically they're denying Paul in Romans 6. They're basically just saying, go do whatever the heck you want because Jesus got righteousness for you, so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, according to Paul in Romans 6, those people are actually showing that they're probably not Christians themselves because... As a Christian, you have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit sealing you, Paul in Ephesians 1, and therefore you won't want to do these things that God hates anymore. Christianity isn't you gritting your teeth and not doing all the bad things you want to do. Christianity is God giving you a new heart so that slowly over time you want to do those bad things less and less and you want to do good things more and more. So that's not you gritting your teeth and struggling to do the good thing instead of the bad thing. It's over time, now maybe sometimes it is like that, but for the most part, it's you more and more as you obey God and spend more time praying and reading his word and growing in your faith, you more and more want to do the good things instead of the bad things. So that what before you were saved would have given you joy to do the bad thing and you know mis- made you miserable to do the good thing, now it's flipped. You're miserable after you've done the bad thing because the Holy Spirit's convicting you and you have joy of doing the good thing because of the Holy Spirit you know, telling your conscience this was good. And so there's a lot of people that go the antinomian route to say all of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled. None of it's applicable anymore. Now we only have to do what the New Testament tells us to. And that's just another form of, like I said, that big word antinomianism. And uh, another issue with that, when we're looking at these Old Testament laws with Israel, is that you know, people will try to say, oh, well, those laws were only for Israel. God gave them to Israel, so they only applied to Israel. And now we're getting into... Kind of everything else was a little bit of the introduction getting to this point here. That they'll say, those were only for Israel. You know, okay, sure, the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, those are uh, for everyone. But the, the other stuff, the civil law was only for Israel. Well, there's a bit of an issue with that. When you look in the Old Testament, God holds other nations around Israel responsible for not obeying him. When God, I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, but when Israel is coming in, it's probably a verse in Joshua because that's when they're taking over the promised land. Maybe it's a verse before then as God's prophesying it. He says that it's not because of how great Israel is that he's giving them this land. It's because of how evil the other nations are that he's giving it to them. I think one of them actually might be Deuteronomy 9, which I was just right by there. Yeah, so Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5. Do not say in your heart when Yahweh your God has driven them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your God is dispossessing them before you in order to confirm the oath which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So you, sh- so you shall know that it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess it, for you are a stiff-necked people.
people. And so there and in other passages in the first six or seven books of the New Testament, God is telling Israel that he is driving these nations out before them, the Canaanites, and then you've got the Jebusites and the Philistines and all the other ites and Enes and all these other people. God is driving them out before Israel, and some of them, like the Philistines, God leaves there a little bit longer to test them. Some of them, like the Jebusites, he drives out more quickly. That God is driving these nations out before Israel in judgment on the nations because these nations are not obeying God's rules. And it's not just then when Israel is driving these nations out, it's also later on in Israel's history with their surrounding nations. We see this again. Think of Nineveh. God tells, you know, we all know the story of Jonah and the whale. Well, remember, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to it. Of course, it's Jonah's before Christ, so it's the gospel of the coming Messiah, not the gospel of the Messiah who has come. But Jonah is told to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh because they are so wicked that if they don't repent, God's going to destroy the city. Jonah walks in there saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, the city turns around completely and repents, and they're not destroyed until a century later after the grandchildren of those people went back to their ancestors' sin instead of the repentance and faith in God of their parents and grandparents. And so if these laws are just for Israel and we don't have to worry about them today because it was just for Israel, just for this one nation 2,000 years ago, not for anyone else, well, then how come God is judging other nations around the area because they aren't keeping his rules, because they aren't keeping his laws? There's something a little bit more timeless, a little bit more for everyone if God is judging these nations according to his law, even though he only gave it to Israel. If it's only for Israel because God gave it directly to them, then God would only judge Israel for breaking his law, not other nations. And then another aspect to look at that, God's law reflects God's character. God says, you shall not lie because God is truth. God says it is wrong to hate what is good because he himself is good. Now, it's not wrong to hate what is evil. Loving what is good actually makes it necessary to hate what is evil. If you love children, you must hate abortion. If you love life, you must hate murder, etc. But, uh, so the, that, all that to say, the Old Testament law reflects God's moral character and we believe that God doesn't change. After all, God, I think it's in Malachi, says, I am God, therefore you, O Israel, are not destroyed. Maybe that's not Malachi. I think it's one of the minor prophets. God says that, that because he doesn't change, that's why Israel isn't destroyed. Because if God would change like we as humans do, he would have destroyed Israel for their sin. But because he doesn't change and he made these promises to their ancestors, then he will keep them. And so God doesn't change. That it means, you know, Basically that God is immutable. God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And because God exists outside the boundary of time, actually yesterday and tomorrow are all the same for God. God's not just everywhere at once. He's every when at once because he exists outside the boundary of time. And so if, if this Old Testament law reflects God's moral character, and if God doesn't change, and if God is equal in his justice on everyone, not judging some people on a higher standard than others. Everyone is judged on the same standard, which is why we need the gospel. God can't just grade Christians on a curve, that way they make it into heaven. He has to grade them on the same scale he grades those who goes to, go to the lake of fire by. And that's why we need the gospel, because Jesus paid our penalty. But since God doesn't grade on a curve, God holds everyone equally responsible, God is equally just with everyone, and God doesn't change, then how could God hold some nations to some laws and other nations to different laws? How could God hold Israel to this high standard he gave to them and then hold all the other nations of the world to a different standard because, oh, he just gave that law to Israel and no one else? It doesn't make sense. God would have to change or in some way deny himself to hold other nations to a different standard than the one he holds Israel to. Now, there is a certain extent that he does hold Israel to a different standard because he made a covenant with them, God made that Mosaic covenant with Israel when they're standing on the two mountains of blessing and cursing when they first take the promised land and all of that. But that is just God holding them to the covenant they agreed to him to. That isn't talking anything about these different standards God has for every nation. God's law against murder is the same law for Israel as it was for the Philistines, as it is for every nation around today.
That law was true for Israel when Joseph was second in command of Pharaoh there. That law is, sorry, Egypt, when Joseph was second in command of Pharaoh there. That law is also true for modern day Egypt today. It doesn't matter the time or the place or anything. When God says, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do this, do that, all of those things, that is true for every nation, whether that was Israel in covenant with God or not, because God doesn't change and he doesn't grade on a curve. And then, so that's the second reason. The three reasons why these laws apply to other nations besides Israel. One, we, the first one we looked at, we see God judging other nations for disobeying his laws and his rules, not just Israel. Two, God doesn't change and God doesn't grade on a curve and the law reflects his character, which doesn't change. And then the third one is when uh, people, I, don't th I think most of the time they don't realize they're doing this and that's why we need to explain it to them. When people say only the Ten Commandments are applicable today, but things like the book of Deuteronomy aren't, they're actually contradicting themselves. The book of Deuteronomy is actually God's commentary on the book on the Ten Commandments as it applies to Israel. More or less, the book of Deuteronomy is God taking the Ten Commandments and giving specifics and details about the Ten Commandments as it related to Israel at their point in history. And so you can't say that the Ten Commandments still apply, but God's explanation of the Ten Commandments doesn't apply. That's crazy. That's like, you know, saying that it's wrong to murder people is okay to say, but these very specific commands on what murder is and isn't are wrong. Well, you can't say murder is wrong, but specifics on murder or what's murder or not isn't. Like, you have to take it all or nothing. Is murder wrong or is it not? And so we can't try to say that God's more detailed, you know, like God's commentary on the Ten Commandments is no longer applicable, but the Ten Commandments still are. That doesn't make sense. That's contradicting yourself. And I think people don't realize when they say stuff like that because they don't realize that like pretty much all of Deuteronomy is just God's commentary on the Ten Commandments. God taking the Ten Commandments, broadening them out to be more precise, more exact, more detailed, specifically to how it applies to Old Testament Israel. And now all of that was like the second introduction of getting to how is that important today. So we see all of this. We see, okay, that God's word is important. God's commands on Israel are important today. They're important on us individually because they help us see our need for the gospel. They're important to us that once we have believed the gospel, they are important for us to see what's right and what's wrong to be our guide once we are saved, our guide leading us to the gospel before salvation, and our guide on how should we then live once we are saved. And then, so that was the more individual level. Then the more corporate national level is God's law is applicable on other nations besides just Israel. God's law is applicable, we see in the Old Testament, on other nations around Israel because God judges them for their sin as well. That's one. God's law is applicable on other nations too because the laws reflect God's character. God doesn't change and God doesn't grade on a curve. And then three, these laws are applicable because we all understand the Ten Commandments are important for every nation and most of the rest of the Old Testament law is just God explaining the Ten Commandments in more detail and with particular reference to Israel. And so if you think the Ten Commandments are still important, then you basically have to accept almost the entirety of the Old Testament law. And so what does that mean for us today? How is that important for us today? Well, that's important for us today because that means that basically every nation on the planet should be submitting to God's Old Testament law. Now, that doesn't mean every nation on the planet needs to turn into Old Testament Israel. We'll look at that in a minute. Every nation on the planet today doesn't need to turn into Old Testament Israel. After all, we had talked near the beginning about the sacrificial system. If we tried to do a Day of Atonement and a Passover once a year today, we would actually be denying the gospel and sinning because Jesus is the Lamb of God. The ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. It's not done away with. It's not like Jesus did away with the ceremonial system and all the sacrifices but they're all fulfilled in him, so we are obeying those sacrifices when we believe the gospel rather than obeying them when we actually do the sacrifices like before Jesus came. Now we are obeying God's commands to sacrifice these animals when we believe in Jesus, the, the sacrifice of the God-man that they were all pointing to. But everything else, the moral law and the civil law, 
are still applicable today in a more real sense than just we obey them when we obey the gospel. Like we actually still actually have to do something with those beyond just obeying the gospel. You can't be the antinomian who says, because I obey the gospel, that means I've obeyed God's command to not murder, so therefore if I murder someone, it's okay. That's not what God's meaning at all there. And uh, now some people will say, okay, the moral law is still okay, but not the civil law. But if they re all reflect God's moral character, then how can we say we can just do away with the ones that we don't like? No, you have to accept all of them or none of them, basically. You can't break God's law and chop it up into parts you like and parts you don't. And so we'll see this a little bit in Psalm chapter 2. Sorry, just Psalm 2. Technically, the Psalms aren't chapters. In Psalm 2, which is probably my favorite one out of all 150 of them, we see there, uh, this is actually David who wrote this. This is a psalm that, the psalm itself doesn't tell us who wrote it, but in the book of Acts, it is cited according to David. David says in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 is a really important passage of scripture in this because when we look at it, it's broken up into four sections. The first section, nations are rebelling against God. Nations are wanting to throw off God's authority over them. They're wanting to throw off God's kingship and lordship over them. And the second section of three verses, God merely laughs at them. He says, basically, oh, you're so big and strong, thinking that you're going to throw off my authority over you. Well, good luck with that. And then he says, he's installed Jesus as king upon Zion, God's holy mountain, that Jesus is king. And then he says that, now it's Jesus talking. Jesus says, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Basically, it's saying that the day that it says Jesus is begotten of the Father isn't meaning, no, Jesus is always begotten of the Father because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all co-eternal. They are all just as eternal. They are all equal. They are all one triune God. So it's not saying Jesus became the Son of the Father, but that this Jesus being the Son of the Father was proclaimed to the world on the day that he was resurrected. That's what it has reference to here. So on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, nearly 2,000 years ago was the day that he basically was given the kingship of the, over the whole earth, that Jesus is king now, that all the ends of the earth as, are his possession, and that those who rebel against him, he will break with a rod of iron and shatter them like a potter's vessel if they continue in the rebellion. But then we have the good news of the last section, that if they show insight, if they take warning, if they serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling, then they will be blessed because they are taking refuge in Jesus, i.e. believing the gospel on the individual level and on the national level, obeying God's commands for nations. But if they don't, then it says, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. So Psalm 2 is kind of getting at this idea that the nations are under the authority of King Jesus. He's currently ruling and reigning them and putting, Psalm 110.1, putting under his feet, those who are in rebellion against him. So all of that ties in because the nations are to obey God's laws from what we saw before. Those laws in the Old Testament weren't just for Israel because one, God held other nations around Israel to that same standard even before Israel came into the promised land. Two, they reflect God's character. God doesn't change and God doesn't grade on a curve. And three, because 
we all agree the Ten Commandments are still important today, and the Ten Commandments are really just the summary of the rest of the Old Testament law. It's actually funny. When people today try to say that Christianity isn't about uh, doing works, it's about loving God and loving neighbor, well, actually, love God, love neighbor is the summary of the Ten Commandments, which is the summary of the entire Old Testament law. So when you say Christianity isn't about doing these works, it's about loving God, loving neighbor, what you're actually saying is Christianity isn't about doing these works, it's about doing these works. It doesn't make sense, and it's because of their biblical ignorance that they're making such stupid claims. Uh, but all of that aside, that these laws are applicable on all nations. When God tells Israel, thou shalt not murder, God is also telling Philistia, where the Philistines are from, and Egypt, and all the other nations around at that time. He's also telling America, and Canada, and Mexico, and uh, South Korea, and including nations like North Korea or China that are violating that command by the tens of thousands, if not millions, every year. That is a command on all nations, and Jesus says that he will crush those who are in rebellion against him for not obeying his commands. So that basically means all nations, including today, nearly 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ, are held to, on the national level, held to the standard of Old Testament Israel. But I said I'd come back to how Israel, that, that doesn't mean we all have to turn into 1,000 B.C. Israel. That saying that all nations are held to that standard doesn't mean we have to turn into Israel a thousand years before Christ was born. And that's because we are submitting to the, not where Jesus, you think about how Jesus talks to the Pharisees, that they are disobeying the spirit of the law to uphold the letter of the law, that the Pharisees will disobey commands about the heart while having outward conformity to the law, that um, even on this national level, we're, we're, we're with Jesus on that. We want to obey the spirit of the law. So when Jesus tells Israel to not put, to, to put these uh, uh, fencing, the, it calls them parapets, to put a fence around their roof, that doesn't mean that we have to go put a fence around our roof today because, well, it says it there in the Bible, put a fence around your roof. We're looking at what does this law mean for Israel? Why did God give this law to Israel? How can we understand the meaning of that law and then apply it today? So we're not going to, if we have my ideal theonomic America that I think is in obedience to Scripture, we're not going to go around putting fences on our roofs because we don't hang out on our roofs. When you look at the context of it, Israel's in the Middle East. They are all, you know, they don't have AC. They're several thousand years before the invention of electricity, let alone the air conditioning unit. And so similarly to in the southern parts of the U.S., people have those big porches and before AC started getting more spread out and more popular in the country, more people had it, people would just sit on their, they would go get a you know, glass of iced tea and sit on their porch. It's a very common thing in some of the southern parts of the country. Think of it similarly. In ancient Israel, to once you were done working for the day to try to cool off a bit, you wouldn't sit in your house. Your house is practically like a giant oven when that sun's really hot. You go up on top of your roof. You and your family and any friends you have over, you hang out on top of your roof. That way you can get some breeze and cool off and stuff like that. And so since people are spending so much time on their roofs, God gave them this law that, hey, you have to have a fence around your roof. It's about the preservation of life. And so that way, if uh, you and your friends are hanging out on your roof and your friend falls off, well, since you got that fence there, he won't fall off your roof and die. He'll almost fall off your roof and then he'll get caught by the fence and not fall off. Similarly to when we have guardrails on uh, stairs and things like that today, it's a similar idea. Or when you have the guardrail on the side of a cliff when you're driving down the road, a similar idea to that, the preservation of life. And so how that could apply today is say you have an in-ground swimming pool. Well, you want to have a fence around your in-ground swimming pool or a fence around your entire backyard. That way you don't have the neighbor's kid go into your backyard and end up drowning in the pool. It's about the preservation of life rather than about strict adherence of we have to put a fence around our roof. Someone acting like a Pharisee today would have a in-ground swimming pool in their backyard with no fence around it, but then they'd have a fence around their roof and they'd say they're obeying God's law. Well, actually they wouldn't be because they're, they're ripping God's law out of its, they're ripping the Bible out of its context and they're applying it hyper-literally without understanding what it was actually meant to do, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. 
And so another thing with that, we don't see in the Old Testament police officers going around ticketing Israelites for not having a fence around their roof. We don't see that. If you're an Israelite, you can disobey this command about having a fence around your roof and you'd never get in trouble as long as nothing bad happened. God's law isn't predictive in meeting out punishment. God's law doesn't say, let's throw this person in prison because it looks like they might do something bad. God's law leaves a lot of that part up to, uh, to the religious system. So what we would, today would be the church, back then would be Levites, priests, things like that, and to the family. So today, if you're doing something that could be really bad, but no one's gotten hurt yet, it's up to your family members to smack you upside the head and say, hey, go do that. You're going to get someone killed if you don't. Or it's up to, if it's something sinful, it's up to your pastor or your or a brother and sister in Christ to say, hey, this is sinful. You need to stop doing it. You know, it's sinful for you not to have that fence to protect people around whatever it is. But if we are following Old Testament law, as long as no one was hurt, then no punishment was due. But if we were trying to do something like that today, there would be police officers going around or inspectors going around and you get fined $1,000 for not having a fence around your in-ground swimming pool, which is where the U.S. government has far departed from what the Bible tells governments they are to do. The U.S. government is far larger than any biblical standard of government should ever be. After all, they take more than 10% out of income, and the Bible says that a government that takes the tithe for itself is calling itself God. Any government that takes a 10% or higher income tax is saying, I am God, not God, and is under God's judgment for that and will one day perish if they don't repent. And so Israel, as long as you, if you didn't put that fence around your roof, as long as no one got hurt, you'd be fine. No one would go around and fine you for not having a fence around your roof. There wasn't a Levite checking on if everyone had a fence around their roof. But if you and your friends were up on the fence around your roof and he fell off because you didn't have a fence there, now you're charged with manslaughter. And so that's how it worked. The, there, weren't peop, there weren't police officers in ancient Israel punishing you for not obeying the law when no one got hurt. Instead, it was up to you to obey God's law. But if someone got hurt because you didn't, then a judge would fine you accordingly, whether it was you had to pay back money to the person who was injured or something more drastic than that. And so that should be the standard for all nations today, the standard of the Old Testament Israel. And so that's how we need to look at the Old Testament law and say, okay, how did God apply this law to Old Testament Israel? What is the reasoning behind why God gave Israel in 1500 BC this particular command? And how do we apply it to our nation today? Is it something that's true in the exact same way of everyone, like just thou shalt not murder that we apply today in pretty well the same way? Or is there more of something that's the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law, like the fences around the roofs, that we apply that same idea of preservation of life to ourselves today? And so that's the standard that God calls nations to. And uh, he doesn't call nations to it in a way that America likes to make it today about this massive, probably multi-billion dollar police system that goes around punishing you for a crime when, in which there was no one injured. You almost never see a crime being done according to Old Testament law when there's not injury being done. Like I said, that's when more the family and the church get involved because after, like with what I said last year, I think around September, God has three spheres of government, three spheres of sovereignty in the world, family government, church government, and state government, whereas we just think of the word government meaning the last one, the state government. But there's, different, there's three, one, three of those the family, the church, and the state, and a lot of things that have been chalked up to the government, the state government in the U.S. today, is actually under the realm of the family and or the church, like care for the poor. God's word never says that government should care for the poor, except in one area. The one area where government cares for the poor is to punish those who do something criminal to hurt the poor. If someone isn't doing breaking some kind of law to hurt the poor, then the government shouldn't get involved, which means the government shouldn't get handouts. If someone steals $1,000 from a poor person, it's the government's job to make sure that person pays back the $1,000 with proper interest and no one goes to prison. 
There's no going to prison for theft. There's just paying back the person what you stole plus interest. That interest actually is different depending on what happened. If you come clean about the $1,000 you stole from them, you only have to give 20% interest, $1,200 total. If you get caught and forced to pay them back and you don't come clean about it, well, now you have to pay quite a bit more, maybe two or three or even four times as much, two or three or $4,000 for that 1,000 you stole. There's no prison or jail or anything else involved in that person that stole from them. There is just restitution. Now both parties are made equal and think about what a better system that is today. If someone steals $1,000 from me today and they get caught and then I don't get my $1,000 back, they just go spend two years in prison but end up getting off after six months for good behavior. What does that do? Now my taxes, which are already at an unbiblically high level, are paying for that person to get their three hots in a cot and I never get my $1,000 back. But under the biblical system, that person steals $1,000 from me. They, a few days later, start feeling guilty about it, come clean to me about it. They have to give me $1, that $1,000 back plus 20% interest. Or maybe they don't come clean about it. Well, now they have to pay the higher interest rate. Now they have to give me that $1,000 back plus another 1000 to pay me back for, make restitution for their crime and pay me back for the amount of time I didn't have that money. And uh, that's actually a much better system. I've heard someone say, I don't like that as much because that means I have to talk to the person that stole money from me. I'd rather them just go to prison and I never see them again. Exactly, that's the point of it. You have to talk to this person again because restitution has to be made and that restitution isn't just monetary that they pay you back with interest. That restitution is also between you two as individuals that you now have to talk to each other as that person pays you back. Maybe they can't pay you back all at once. You have to work something out where they pay you back a little bit a month over the course of a year. Or maybe they pay you back by doing work for you. Maybe they agree to mow your lawn every Friday for the next summer or two and you count that as being paid back since they can't afford to give you money back for what they stole. That makes you two work together and actually talk to each other and actually see each other face to face. And so there's not just monetary restitution, there's actually personal, individual restitution between you two as humans. And that's much better than the system we have now where you just demonize that person in your heart for the rest of your life and never actually get your money back. And now your taxes are paying for them to get their free, uh, you know, their free food and their bed and everything in prison until they get out. And so that's where, not, you know, that's just to give an example of ways that applying God's law is actually better than what we have now. And so I guess if there's any one thing I want to say with that, you still, it's not even noon yet, but if I keep going on at this point, I'm probably just going to say the same things over and over again. Basically, that's just, all that to say is, uh, for a quick summary, that God's law is still important today for all nations, that some Christians want to say God's law isn't important because that's Old Testament. Well, that's just so wrong. There's almost not even worthy to give a response to it. Other people try to say there's the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law, and that God did away with the civil and the ceremonial, and only the moral applies today. Well, now they're trying to break up God's law, which since God's law reflects himself, is break, they're trying to break up God himself by breaking up God's law. All of God's law is still applicable, just some of it we obey by believing the gospel. Others of it we, have, we still obey because... It's still a command on us. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can go steal because God's law doesn't apply to you anymore. No, it still does. It still applies to everyone. And so we have to obey God's moral law in our lives and his civil law as well, which means we have to obey God's law on an individual level as each of us as people, each of us has fathers or as sons or whatever, but also we have to play God's, obey God's law on the national level, which means that uh, everyone, president, vice president, Congress, Supreme Court, and all the various governors and state-level Congress all should be obeying God's law as it is on nations with these things like I talked about, the you know, little things like the fences around the roof and how we would apply that today or things like restitution for theft and all the other things that God's law speaks on. God's law also actually speaks on uh, inflating the money supply, and God condemns that as well. So even today, we'd be in a lot better situation if the last couple of presidents had been obeying God's command against inflating the money supply. God condemns those later on in the Old Testament, those who had dross to silver and to gold. Basically, that is 
people adding impurities to silver and gold to make more of it. That way there's more silver and gold in their economy and are actually inflating the money supply. God actually in the Old Testament condemns inflation and says inflation is morally wrong. Something that a lot of people don't know about. But all that is to say that God holds all nations responsible for obeying his law, not just Old Testament Israel. And those, once again, those three reasons we saw with that is God condemns those around Israel even before Israel took inheritance of the promised land for disobeying him. God's law reflects his moral character and his nature, and God can't deny himself. God doesn't grade on a curve and God doesn't change. So therefore, you can't say this is only applicable to Israel and no one else. And then also, because of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the summary of God's Old Testament law. And so you can't say the Ten Commandments are still applicable, but not the Old Testament law, because you kind of have to do a both or neither. You can't take one, and, one without the other, since they're, one's just the summary of the other. You can't say, I like the summary of this thing, but not the entire thing itself. Well, the summary just summarizes it. You can't take the summary without the whole thing. It's both or it's neither. And so what that means is that we should be, as Christians, trying to call our nations to obedience to God's law. Whether, you know, all different ways that could take, whether that means writing to congressmen or governors or whatever, or whether that means even running yourself or supporting those who are doing a good job, which these days it's hard to find. The people doing a good job in politics are few and far between, but there are still good people, like my friend John Jacob, who was at mine and Rose's wedding, doing good work, and uh, trying to bring the nations in obedience to God's law. Uh, another thing with that, it means even if things went ideally, it wouldn't get perfect overnight, that we're in such a faraway place from God's word, such a faraway place from obedience to God, that in a lot of ways, things would probably have to get worse before they get better. I think when you clean a dirty room or if your garage is a wreck, your garage is actually going to get dirtier before it gets cleaner because you have to spread everything out to be able to organize it. So when something gets to be a big enough mess, you actually have to make more of a mess and be more painful for a little bit in the process of cleaning it. And so even if tomorrow everyone in U.S. government became a Christian in some sort of national revival, that doesn't mean things would get perfect overnight. There'd be a lot of working through the culture, and that's why actually obedience to God's law is only possible by the Great Commission and only possible by evangelism. God doesn't work by revolution. God works by regeneration. God doesn't work by revolution. God works by regeneration. God doesn't change a nation to obey him on the national level by getting a Constantine in there and forcing Christianity down on the rest of the country. God changes a nation by having revivals. What we see with the Great Awakening under George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers in the U.S. and U.K., both the U.S. and the U.K. were in horrible places before that happened, similar to, if not worse, than where they are today. Before the First Great Awakening, America had less than 10% of the population claimed to be Christian. And then the U.K. was well on its way to having their own form of the French Revolution when the Wesley brothers and the Whitfield and George Whitfield, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brought the First Great Awakening, which revolutionized both of those countries for the next century or two to come, turning both of those countries into the two of the strongest economic superpowers in the world for a very long time afterwards because of that great awakening. So Christianity, how we change nations and make nations obey God, isn't this top-down where we try to get some people in the top levels of all three branches of government, some people in SCOTUS and the president and some Congress members become Christian and force Christianity on the nation, Rather, it is from the bottom up that we see individuals, lay people in churches and pastors and fathers and mothers and children all being obedient to God's word. And then we see it rise from the top there. That because these people are being obedient to God's word, they're not just getting saved and going to church and never really doing anything other than going to church that identifies them as a Christian, but they're being a Christian in every area of life and every single minute detail of their life. They're changing their lives in a Christian way, and that will change the culture over time. It may take a few generations, but that will change the culture over time until, by God's grace, eventually the entire, the entire nation is Christianized, until the entire nation has majority of the people in it are Christians. And 
if majority of the people in a nation are Christians, then the laws are going to be different because they're going to want to repeal sinful laws and put in righteous laws that are in accord with God's word. And that's the ultimate way that you see nations changed. So basically, most of that was all about how God's law is still applicable on nations today. Not just the U.S., not just Israel, but every single of the like 200 nations on the planet today including the nations where some of the worst atrocities are happening, whether that be America or North Korea or China. And yes, I just put America with North Korea and China in that list. And Venezuela as well. Um, but also, all of that change is only possible by the gospel. So evangelism is actually one of the best ways to change a nation and make a nation be more obedient to God's word and God's laws on nations. Evangelism having children that are raised in the faith and know what they believe and why they believe it and are able to evangelize others, that's what changes a nation over time to obey God's word on the national level, not just trying to elect some Christian politicians to force it on people. That's not going to work. That's revolution. And God works by regeneration, not by revolution. And so with that, let's close in prayer. God, thank you for today. Thank you for how you have blessed us. May we glorify you with our time. May we honor you in seeking to bring about laws that are in obedience to you and do it by evangelism and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, not by a revolution that will fail because that is not your way of going about things in the world. May we glorify you in all we do. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all for staying in, listening all the way to the end. I hope you learned something there that you were able to get a little bit of a better understanding of the basics of theonomy and why I think this is the biblical perspective on politics. So that was this week's episode of Theonomy. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh, you satisfy